so Stu, we were supposed to start recording this like an hour ago, but we decided <laughs> we, we decided to wait till the, this is Monday night, and we decided to wait for the Star Wars trailer to air before we began. Was it worth it? Wisely, what, we we were wise about that because yes, it was worth it. Because I, we were going to skip it. We were thinking about well, we'll just record the podcast and watch it after. But we didn't have it in us. We had to we were, watch. We're weak. We are weak. <laughs> and speaking of weak, you already have your tickets, sir, correct? I, I am. I got lucky. Like, I don't – I – apparently I just managed to get in there before, you know, the entire world hopped on Fandango and uh, nabbed four tickets to the December 17th IMAX screening at 7. Because, t- yeah, tickets went on sale about – well, it was. It's been a couple hours ago now, but everything was crashed. Like I'm not even sure. My 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 sort of temporary plan, and I had to think long and hard about this. But I, I'm hoping. I was first of all, I was debating whether or not to even go to the screening because I'm hoping. I'm assuming there'll be a screening here in Pittsburgh. I'm on the screening list. I should have the opportunity to see it a couple days before it opens, probably that Tuesday. But I almost didn't want to because it's Star Wars and I kind of want to see it with my kids for the first right. time. And it's a big family trip and it's a very exciting time in my household. And it's like, do I really want to burn this opportunity by going to a screening where I'm, I can't take my whole family? And it it might, it might not be with the best crowd. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be Star Wars people there, right. but it's going to be a more sort of, you know, screenings are a mixture of critics and people who are paid and write about movies to be there and then also like contest winners and stuff so i I don't know what the crowd's going to be like but the thing is is i mean i think that's still a school week for my kids and thursday night was probably going to be out and my wife wasn't thrilled about friday night so i think what we decided is that we're gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna attempt to go to the screening earlier in the week and then we're gonna take the kids on saturday so i was just trying to get on fandango to see if saturday tickets were available and fandango was down i mean nothing it was it was crashed and then when I was able to get on it was um it was real slow and sluggish. So I, I still have no idea if they're selling Saturday tickets for my theater and if they're still available. Well what's crazy is that like I I just kind of got on there on a lark. Um because I, I thought that the from what I had heard, tickets weren't even gonna go on sale until after the trailer hit. Right. And so I just kind of got on there. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll at least have the page up. And lo and behold, it was active. And so I was just like, oh, hell yeah. So well, I just kind of got lucky. Well, I'm hoping I can get Saturday tickets tomorrow. I mean, the movie opens like Thursday at 8. Uh, so there'll be Thursday Seven. night. Or seven, well, okay, eight, so, eight yeah. your time. Yeah, sure. so there'll be like Thursday evening screenings all day Friday. I mean, I would think Saturday at 1 won't sell out this week. But it's Star Wars, so who the fuck knows, man? I don't know. <laughs> I better yeah. get on tomorrow and check, right? Right. And, uh, and and then I was telling someone online today, people were talking about when they're going to see it, and if for some reason the screening falls apart, either I can't get to it or something, and I have to wait till Saturday to see the movie, that is going to be excruciating. I'm going to have to go on, under blackout. <laughs> we'll see. The trailer was good. I, I only watched it uh, once. Uh, my initial impression was uh, I didn't think it was as good a teaser as the first two, but the imagery was fantastic, and it still hit a bunch of happy buttons. Well, I mean, they were they and, were clearly with the first two teasers or trailers or whatever you want to call them. I mean, they were they were obviously I mean they were wanting to hit maximum feels, yes, uh, or whatever, and that that wasn't this. The goal of this trailer was obviously to show 
as much new footage as they could without actually showing anything. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it's basically just a large collection of completely out of context images. And I'm totally fine with that. I believe right. that you and I have even said previously on this podcast that we would be fine if they never released the, you know, the story trailer, that final trailer will films right. kind of spell out what the movie's about because you don't need it in this case. You just don't no, need you don't. it. No. I mean, well, I mean, they could have they could have released that one initial teaser and then never never shown anything else. And it would have been and, and they wouldn't have taken a hit. I mean, they could have, but people get antsy and you would have some well, sure. negative publicity. This way, I, I don't think you get, I mean, you get some film people crying and whining on Twitter, but I, they don't need to give away any more than they've given away. They really no, don't I, need to. I think I think that the new trailer, uh, I think it's great. I, you know, like you said, some of the imagery is just stunning. It's it's very clearly, I mean, this is this is of the Star Wars pedigree. There is absolutely no denying that. But I love how dynamic it feels. Like I love, uh, you know, I mean, this this is this is the kind of fresh perspective that I've wanted out, of, you know, that I wanted out of the prequels. And I and I love kind of like the inversion of, of some stuff, or at least showing stuff from literally a new perspective, like that the shot of the uh, of the Falcon going into hyperspace, but. You know, normally we see that you know the blurry star field as it you know as it hits, as it hits light speed. But we see it from the POV, either from the POV of the cockpit or from behind. But we're seeing the Falcon come toward us with that star field. So it was like it was disorienting for a bit, but it, right. it just felt so cool. I do think, and I've kind of suspected this for a while, and maybe I'm right and maybe I'm wrong, but I think the trailer kind of tips off in my favor that I think Ray who is Daisy Ridley's character, is the Luke Skywalker of this film, of this trilogy. I think she's going to be the blood relation to people from the original trilogy. I think she's going to be the one that's sort of the central character. I think. And I think this trailer kind of tips that off, doesn't it? Um, I mean, with her know, being the first one you see, and kind of her, you know, she says, I'm nobody, or whatever the dialogue is there. I mean, I, I think that it definitely places her as as kind of, as, you know, as as the heart of the of the film, uh, I'm still not complete. I'm still not completely sold on her, you know, on her being the force sensitive one. See, I think she is. We keep saying we keep seeing Boyega with the lightsaber, but I don't think he's the Jedi. I think she is. Or at least I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting. But I mean, this, just, this is why it's fun. This is why it's good that we don't know these right. things because we can debate them and laugh about how totally wrong we were in a couple months, and it's good. <laughs> okay, believe it or not, we did not come here tonight to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> Although we could, we could, we but we'll, could. we'll we'll save that till maybe after we see the actual film. But uh, officially, welcome to the 21st episode of the Cult Spark podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about movies, TV, and other entertainments of the cult and geek varieties. My name is Bob Taylor, and you can find my writing at cultspark.com, along with the writing of one Stuart Smith, who, as always, is here with me tonight. How, how's it going, Stu? It's a pretty good night, right? It is a pretty good night. Uh, tonight, as opposed to Star Wars, we're actually going to talk about two filmmakers and their two new films, uh, Ridley Scott with The Martian and Guillermo del Toro with Crimson Peak. Stu and I have both seen both of those films. These are two filmmakers who get talked a lot about in, you know, in movie geek circles and on the internet, so we thought it might be interesting to break down their new movies and maybe their careers at large a little bit. Uh, Stu, I'll defer to you. Which Who do you want to do first? Which movie? Which, which one um, do you want to go with? 
Let's talk Del Toro. All right, we'll do Del Toro first. So uh, I, I have a print review of Crimson Peak up at cultspark.com if anyone's interested. Uh, I was not a big fan of the movie, which I can get into a little bit later. But again, I'll defer to you, Stu. What did you think of Guillermo's latest? You know, I'm really mixed on it. Uh, I think that there's there are a lot of individual elements that are wonderful in this movie. Uh, there's, I think there's enough good in it to recommend a viewing of it. Uh, but it is, it's a very, very frustrating movie. Yes. Uh, and some of that, some of that isn't the movie's fault. Some of that is entirely the fault of the marketing, uh, because the movie that we are being uh, sold in the trailers is a movie that is much more supernaturally focused. It is being sold as a, you know, creepy, uh, you, you know, very ghost centric uh, gothic horror story when it's really more uh, like the, uh, you know, the love child of uh, Jane Eyre and Fall of the House of Usher. It, it is much more a gothic romance with a sprinkling of the supernatural. Uh, and so that, that's kind of what, even though I wasn't huge on it, I want to see it again now that I am fully aware of what it is and what it's actually going for. And I, cause I, I don't, I don't know that I can fairly judge it in full because, you know, what I expected and what it delivered, uh, was so drastically different. See, I kind of feel like, and, and I'm not, that may have been a problem for people out there, but not speaking for everyone else, just speaking from myself, I the misleading advertising isn't really a problem and shouldn't be a problem. Like I, I think I'm a sophisticated. I mean, it, it I feel be. like I'm a, a sophisticated enough moviegoer to understand that ads aren't always selling you exactly what the movie is. Well, sure. And to pivot appropriately when the movie ends up being different than what the studio is selling. So my well, problem with I, Crimson Peak isn't necessarily that we got a gothic romance instead of a horror film. My problem is that the gothic romance we got isn't very good. Well, in that, I mean, I'm not saying that it's, you know, I'm, I'm not detracting it because it was I, something I other than seen, what I expected. I've just seen a lot of this on the internet where people are immediately writing off the opinions of people who didn't like this movie because, well, you just didn't like it because you didn't think that's what you were getting. Right. Well, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that anybody has problems with it is, is certainly, uh, I mean, there's certainly grounds for that. I have problems with it. Right. Uh, but I just feel like, you know, I might appreciate it on a different level on, you know, maybe more on the level that it was intended, you know, now kind of know, now fully knowing what it was going for, because my, my biggest problem, and, and this is part of why I wasn't able to ever, fully uh appreciated in that different way is because it never it never fully commits to to what it really is right. like it wants it wants to have its cake and eat it too uh like i feel like that in order for this thing to succeed it needed to push the supernatural elements even further into the background uh than they already were and really commit to that to you know to the romance and dramatic side of it because that part of it feels so so underserved. I mean, the supernatural element definitely feels underserved, but the 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 dramatic side of it all the more so. I mean, the, Tom Hiddleston's character feels so drastically underwritten. It's yes. amazing. You know, it, it's amazing. It's an amazing testament uh, to his skill as an actor. The, you know that he's able to wring so much pathos and and uh, you know kind of warmth out of that character. I didn't think that much pathos was wrong. 
but I not necessarily there, his cer- fault. certainly more than what was written there. You know, I I felt I felt sorry for his character, and it was entirely because of the way he played it, not because of the way it was written. Yeah, there's this. Getting back to what you were saying a second ago, that I've seen some people say, well, it's it's not fair to compare it to other ghost centric stories or horror films because that's not what it is. But at the same time, those things are in the movie. I they mean, are. It's, they are in the movie, are but they're barely in, in there. There are jump scares in this movie. There are. It's not just the advertising. Those elements are not the primary focus of the movie, but they're in the movie. So at some level, you have to judge it as a horror film. Or as a haunted house movie, and I went through that when I was when I was writing my review, I, I specifically say yes, it's a haunted house movie, and then I was debating whether to leave that line in or not because it kind of is and it kind of isn't. Well, see, but, here, here's but, the thing: like the house the... is a big deal. I mean, when they spent all, I mean, and the house, the mansion is gorgeous. I mean, they, you know, right. If there's a reason to see this movie, it's to to soak in the production design because 40, that house that house is just absolutely stunning 45 minutes into the movie which is too long in my opinion the action moves to this mansion where bad things had happened and 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 it's haunted so it, at that point it does become a haunted house movie in some aspects and it's just not a very good one well it i mean but i think it's fair to say it's it's a haunted house movie i think Kind of, even like, though see, even though it is see, here's more the thing, predominantly like, you, a gothic romance, you could take out those haunting moments, like yes. the the literal moments where where uh, Edith is is being haunted by those ghosts and right. you know seeing their warnings and all that kind of stuff. You could take those moments out, and the movie would wouldn't would not miss a beat. Like you would not think that there's something missing. Right, you still that, have a movie. It right, those, those the ghosts have, don't affect the plot. Right, those at have all. absolutely no bearing on what's happening. But that, and that, and see, it, that's and, a problem and, for me. Then for me, it's well, like, well, why are these ghosts even in? Well, the movie? I agree. I, I I agree with that, and that's that's one of my big points is that like it never seems to fully. It needs to fully commit one way or the other. I agree. You know, it, it either needs to just go full bore. With, you know, the ghosts and the haunting and, you know, all this creepy stuff going like, you know, why are there corpses inside the the clay pools and, you know, and all, and all this like, like it just it seems so strange to me that that it held back on certain spots like, OK, why have it? Why give the appearance of blood running down the walls? Oh, no, it's just clay. Why not? just Why not just go full bore? Why not have the house actually bleeding? Right. You know, why, 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 you know, Del Toro of all people, why hold back like that? You know, it just, it just seems strange that, you know. Right. It's, it's almost like he was afraid to commit to the full on horror stuff that we know he's into. Right. But he was purposely trying to do something a little less genre-y, I guess. Which is, which is admirable. And, right. and I, and I like that. And that's kind of why I think but like, okay. it doesn't okay, play to his strengths because as you move away from that sort of horror stuff, you're relying more and more on the story, which when we'll get into in a minute is what Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro is not good at. It, it, but, it, it depends on the kind of story that he's doing. So let's, if I were to treat it strictly as a Gothic romance, my problems would be that just the characters aren't, interesting enough to support it i don't think edith is that interesting of a character and she's largely just passive through the whole thing she does a little bit of sleuthing around in the basement where she's not supposed to be and a a little bit of fighting at the end but she's fairly passive 
Um, Tom Hiddleston's character, whose name I'm looking up because I forget. <laughs> I completely forgot it too. Hold on. Like Edith is the only one that I remember because like they say it constantly. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston's character, whose name is Thomas. There we go. Sharp. He he has a character arc, but it's a little muddled and doesn't really track from be- the beginning to the end of the movie. For for me, for example, like Jim Beaver's character, who plays Edith's father, thinks that Thomas is up to no good and just. A bad idea to be associating with this man before Guillermo ever hints to the audience that something's wrong with Thomas. It's like the character senses it, even though Dortoro makes no effort for the audience to sense it early on in the film. I right. think that's a problem. Well, he, he does that. He gives us no sense, you know, of, of whatever danger might exist for Tom. Right. But, there is none. Tom and, seems like a totally yet, fine dude for the first right, half Right. Well, hour. exactly. And, and yet, he makes it like I mean, he basically beats you over the head that Tom's sister, Jessica, played by Jessica Chastain, Lucille, is, right, is just creepy and like, oh gee, could she possibly be evil in any way? I don't know. Let's hammer that home by having her completely in silhouette for no reason. It's very predictable. And then when it's time for Chastain to sort of let loose, she doesn't let loose as much as I would have liked her to. Like, I think this movie screamed out for going full-on over-the-top camp in the final third, and yet everything still kind of kept restrained. Yeah, and that, you know, and, and again, that just kind of goes back to my whole thing. It's like things are oddly restrained when I don't know that they needed to be. Like, I don't know that it benefited from that, you know? I, I don't think it did. I'm sure there are people out there who would argue the counter, but... I mean, I was – honestly, I was bored through a lot of it. I was just bored. And I don't think it's because it was more gothic romance than horror. I just – there are no surprises in the film. Like you said, how it's so obvious that Jessica Chastain is going to be the villain. I mean, anywhere you think this movie is going to go, that's where it goes. If you, well, like I, I – the mean, only surprises that I had were were that it – you know, it wasn't, oh, they're, they're bringing her here for – Oh wait, really? Money? That's really that's it? Not sacrifice yeah, or like to revive family members or just money? Really? And, and oh, you, okay. You, you know that Thomas and Lucille's relationship is really creepy. You get that, and then right. when, it, when it's revealed that there's some unbrotherly and sisterly things going on there, you're not surprised. You're like, yes, of course. We, I mean, you can. It's it just it goes nowhere surprising. Yeah. And then with the ghosts just sort of thrown in, like, I, again, I said in the print review that the first the first two times we see the ghosts, it's the same ghost and it's the same scene. Uh, Edith's dead mother is warning child Edith about Crimson Peak. And then there's a couple scenes and then and then there's a flash forward in time and Edith's grown up. And then her mother comes again and again warns her about Crimson Peak. And it's pretty much the same scene. Right. And, well, and, and, and again, like, I mean, you could. I. Those scenes, while impressive, because I love the design of, you know, the specters and, you know, I, I love some of those shots and stuff. And it, it's, you know, yeah, it's, great, it's, great, it, it's great to look at. But again, it, it gives you even even if you knew going in that this was gothic romance and not gothic horror, it still gives you this expectation, you know, that something other than just this melodrama is is going to unfold. 
you know, it, it creates this this weird sort of expectation that that doesn't need to be lurking in the back of your head. And that you know, that's why I say that it needs to either you know, it just it needed to dial even further back on that supernatural stuff and really, really commit to the drama side of it because it just it never you never get a point to really connect with any of these characters. You're you're just you're never you know it, it just feels so dramatically flat. Yeah, I I agree. I, the, I mean the movie's pretty much a total pass for me, and it just it has me wondering if I should ever really be interested in whatever Guillermo del Toro movie's coming out next because we're gonna take some time here and go through the man's filmography, and I I think you are a bigger fan than me, Stu. Although this could possibly be that this could be because you feel like Pacific Rim is today's equivalent of Star Wars, correct? <laughs> it's Star Wars for today's kids. Is that what is that correct? Is that what I understand? It was made <laughs> with the same spirit as the original Star Wars. That's your official statement on this. That is my official statement. <laughs> Stu takes a lot of shit it online com- from people comes... we know for. Uh, to, oh man, I will be, never hear the end of it. Uh, no, you won't. But okay, go on. I, I will say this once and for all. Pacific Rim is not today's Star Wars. It is Guillermo del Toro's Star Wars. George Lucas made Star Wars because he loved Kurosawa's samurai flicks. He loved Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and all, you know, and Saturday sci-fi serials. And he combined all of that love into one film that was, you know, an original expression okay. of those elements. And so, that is so, what Pacific Rim so is. not the same in quality, not the no. same in impact, but the same as no. far as the inspiration as and how as, these... As far as the that. spirit of it goes okay. and what okay. what Del Toro wanted to create, that is 100% what Pacific Rim is. Pacific Rim is his love of kaiju and anime, you know, Robotech and Godzilla and all this kind of stuff. And that, you know, that was what was poured into... That movie. Okay, so we got you officially on the record there. That sounds reasonable. But and you I do, still, but you do love Pacific Rim. I do love, love Pacific Rim. Okay. I think that that's probably his most fun movie. It's not his best movie, obviously, because that's Pan's Labyrinth, of and I don't think anyone would 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 disagree with that. If but they do, they're idiots. Like, okay, I mean, I, okay, I'm missing a couple movies in his filmography. I've never seen Kronos. I've never seen The Devil's Backbone. Uh, but I mean, the rest of his filmography. I mean, his his whole body of work is, you know, his heart is in the right place, but it's still flawed. I mean, that you can you can I put think that, that's fair. You can put I, that. I would say much every extremely movie flawed, but I would agree with that. Right. So I mean, it, it's not surprising to me that Crimson Peak, uh, you know, has these problems, and that certain elements of it are are much more interesting and better than others. And, you know, I, I just kind of come to expect that. And, you know, even though I was ultimately kind of bored with Crimson Peak, I still admire it because I think that, you know, that this was the movie that he set out to make. I mean, this, this was what I, I think that he achieved what he wanted, even if I didn't necessarily, necessarily connect with that. And, and I, you know, I, I respect that. I admire that, you know, and I, I love the, the, you know, the, the heart and, and soul that he tries to put into this stuff even if it doesn't work for me. I have also not seen two of his films. I, I haven't seen The Devil's Backbone, which we should be fair and say that's 
pretty routinely considered one of his better films. Right. Neither of us have seen that one, so let's stay up, that up front. Um, I also haven't seen Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, but that's because really? I, d- I don't like Hellboy 1, so I never felt the need to watch it. You Okay, you need to give that a shot because it's like I, – I will agree that you know Hellboy 1 definitely has a lot of problems. I still like it, but Hellboy 2 is great. I just Hell, – It's so much fun. That does kind of make me want to watch it, but I, I mean I was never a fan of the comic. I gave the original one a shot. I didn't like it at all, so – this Ugh. I think get, that get this, me to watch the sequel. Ugh. I don't know. There is there is there is so much imaginative stuff in there. Uh, there's there's some great action scenes. Uh, you know, Luke Goss does a really great job as as you know as the villain. Uh, it, it's worth watching just for the troll market scene, where it's it's basically just Del Toro's id. And love for monsters just exploded onto the screen, and it's every weird creature that he's, you know, that he's ever had come through his brain, in you know, in this one location. Here's where I'm at. I've seen Kronos, I've seen Mimic, I've seen Hellboy. I don't particularly care for any of those movies. Uh, I love Pan's Labyrinth. I, I I don't really think Pan's Labyrinth is a perfect film, but it's it's really great. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth is a movie everyone needs to see. Uh, don't like Crimson Peak, uh, Crimson, uh, Pacific Rim, uh, you and I mini casted that at one point. So if anybody wants to go back and listen, I don't think my opinions on it have largely changed. It's a solid movie and a fun time. If you got to see it in a giant theater, you know, good sound and a big screen. I, I don't, I mean, I've seen, I've seen bits and pieces of it on cable TV. I think it's a fairly forgettable movie. I think the plotting in it's terrible. (laughs) So past the G whiz of the special effects and monsters fighting robots, it's, you know, there's not much there. It's okay. It's a solid movie. But I mean, when that's the one that's sort of been trumpeted as his big, you know, blockbuster, the one that caught on with the masses or whatever, and it's, it's not that good. I just, I don't think he's a natural storyteller. I think he's a natural designer. I think he has a, a great eye for, you know, imagery. I mean, again, you look at the house in Crimson Peak or just the, the sets or the design work or the monsters, the creatures, and any of those are, in any of his other films. And that stuff's breathtaking. And my, pre- my impression is a lot of that comes directly from him. But his writing seems suspect. Because well, he know, writes a lot of his own films, and they just they don't hold up under scrutiny. And there's not the appropriate emotional hooks. Pacific Rim doesn't have the appropriate emotional hooks, even on a basic level, to get me involved in that film in more of a sort of passing, this is dumb summer fun way. See, I think he is like the subject of uh, the other subject that we will uh, touch on here in a little bit. He's like Ridley Scott. He is as good... He's great from a design perspective, uh, but he's really only as strong as the material that's written. And so I think he just he needs to find he needs to stop writing his own material. Right. right. I was to say the difference here though is Ridley Scott directs other people's scripts. He's largely a director for hire, and we'll get into that later. Right. Guillermo well, del Toro is much more of an uh, auteur. I mean, these are right. his well, works from the, page to screen. Right. And that's that's my point. He needs to get somebody else to take his ideas and really form them on the page and, you know, and then just, you know, go wild with the design on his own. But he, he really, 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 really needs, you know, somebody else shepherding those ideas uh, at the script stage. I I think if you get him, if you get him a great script, 
he could knock it out of the park as you know as a visual storyteller. Some of his movies, like Chronos uh, and at some point Hellboy, have this sort of goofy sense of humor that I, doesn't really vibe with me, and I don't think really fits in with the films he's making. Um, there, there, there's an over reliance on Ron Perlman, who I don't particularly like. I'm probably oh, gonna get slammed for that. I'm not a big oh, Ron that, Perlman guy. Get out of here. He's not a great actor, admit it, Stu. He's not. He's not a great actor, but I think he's good at what he does. He doesn't really have range, but I I am always entertained when Ron Perlman is on my screen. What he does is pop up in Guillermo del Toro movies playing a sort of annoying character who usually pulls me out of it. This especially happens in Kronos, by the way. But um, which is Kronos was his first Kronos is Spanish language. It was del Toro's first film. It's sort of a little horror film that's a twist on the vampire mythos and it's like most of his movies it's sort of interesting from a conceptual level but not at a story level and that line's kind of continued through his whole career excepting pan's labyrinth which is really really fucking good <laughs> we, we can agree on that I yes mean, we can and i guess i guess we keep look i think and here's the thing i'm an outlier here like people love Guillermo del Toro, especially sort of the online geek filmmaking community. Well, and, and I think that's just because to... he likes the genres they like, and he makes the kind of movies people like us should theoretically love and want to see. Stu. Well, and it's because it's like I was it's like I was saying earlier. He is so visibly enchanted and in love, enchanted by and in love with genre, and you know, and I think that that's cinema something... as a whole and specifically the genre. Right, right. Yeah. and I and I think that that's something that shines through, you know, especially in in Crimson Peak. I mean, even its detractors, I think, would would acknowledge that his love of of genre shines through in this movie. It, I mean, you can tell he just he he loves this material, even if he's not if he's not fully capable. I agree uh, with know, that of, of it, executing it, it. And so and so that's that's kind of where like they you you want to root for a guy like that. You you want to root for a guy who clearly you know knows his influences and understands where he's coming from, you know, and he knows what he wants to make and he tries really hard. Like his heart is in this stuff. Like even if it's not necessarily always good, you can you know he's never half-assing whatever he's putting up on the screen. I you know? agree with that, and it would be enough to cut him slack if only like half of his movies didn't work for me but the thing is is nearly all of his movies are not working for me well and that's kind of i mean that's one of the great things about cinema though is that like you know you you can still watch a movie and love the hell out of certain aspects of it even if other things in it don't necessarily work and some people are just able to do that with a lot of his stuff i mean i certainly i'm certainly able to do that with some of his stuff well, we didn't mention blade 2 and i would put blade 2 with pacific rim where it's a fine enough movie i enjoyed watching it i've seen it a couple times i don't think it's great i do think it's better than blade 1 which people like and i can't stand I, man i love blade 1 i can't stand you're blade 1. out of your I, mind blade 2's pretty good it's... Blade Two always gets low marks for me because how the hell do you waste Donnie Yen like that? Yeah, that's I mean, true. really. I mean, considering what it is, a sequel to a Marvel movie, which is really before Marvel was Marvel, but still, I mean, it's sort of like this dark superhero movie. It's a sequel, a new director coming in. He, he does a fair job with that, I think. But again, what's the most notable thing about Blade Two? The design work on some of those vampires with the mouths splitting open, and I think it's I think it's got good action. Yeah, it does. It's you know, fine. It's a fine and, movie. And, and, and again, you know, the production design looks great. The environments look great. I mean, it's, 
you know, it's, it's a good. It's better lo- than Hellboy. It's a good looking movie. Blade Two or Hellboy Two? Which one are you taking, Stu? Oh, I, I like both. I, I mean, I no unacceptable pick. Which one are you taking, Stu? Which one's better? Both. They're both oh, good. Right. I, I you enjoy won't both. play my silly games. No, I won't. I'm not falling into your trap. If I was going to watch Hellboy 2, the time would have been before we recorded this. But <laughs> I mean, you think we're going to like prepare? Or, no, we're Please. not. We're not going to do those things. We're going to pick. Well, one. if I if I had known that you hadn't seen it, I would have gotten on you about that. No, I, I again, I don't like the first one. So this I is just, better than the first one. All right. There's a lot to like in it. It's the only thing that Seth MacFarlane's ever been involved with that I actually think he's great in. Seth MacFarlane's involved in Hellboy 2? He does the voice of Johan, uh, uh, the new head of the BPRD, um, who's like this ectoplasmic being, uh, and he's German, and uh, Seth MacFarlane speaks German. We're talking it's, about Family Guy. Seth yes, MacFarlane. Family Guy, Seth MacFarlane, a guy who I typically hate. I didn't know this. I have a weird relationship with Seth MacFarlane where I actually kind of like Seth MacFarlane the person. I'm I'm entertained by his Twitter feed when he's popped up on Bill Maher and some other talk shows. I've enjoyed his presence. I just don't like any of the things he makes. Yeah, I don't either. But he didn't make this. He's just acting in it, okay. and it's really just him doing a voice. Right, which so, is, it, which is his wheelhouse. Right, and it's you know I mean it's 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 really it's funny it's right. he does a good job with it it's entertaining you should watch it. So, and then here's the thing: Crimson Peak is kind of tanking. I mean, it finished in like third or fourth. Which in the box I'm office. not. I mean, I'm not surprised by that at all. Pacific, really, Pacific Rim Two was going to happen, and then it wasn't going to happen, and then it looked like it was going to happen, and now it's probably not happening again. And it's just like I don't know if Guillermo Toro is going to get many more shots at some sort of big budget film. I don't think he will. Which maybe is for the best. I mean, if we think it is, if, I mean, if we think ultimately. Pan's Labyrinth is his best film. And I mean, I, you know, as as someone who still loves Pacific Rim, uh, I would be over the moon about having another Pacific Rim movie. Uh, but I will absolutely agree that you know he does his best work making smaller films. Would although amazingly, this this only costs like fifty five million to make. But, I mean, yeah, maybe it's better he goes back to small budget stuff because Pan's Labyrinth's, you know, fairly small budget. Even Blade 2, I assume, was a, you know, compared to something like Pacific Rim or Crimson Peak, I assume would be considered a small budget affair, I think. So, uh, you know, go back and do something Spanish language that's dark and twisted and knows what it wants to be for 10 million bucks. And we, the, the Devil's Backbone's the one we should watch, too. I mean, yeah, that is true. But again, is us true. come prepared. That's not going to right. happen. <laughs> Although, if you think I'm not prepared now, wait till we start oh, talking about Ridley Scott in a minute. But but it must be done, A, because Ridley, be done. Ridley Scott is a legendary, much-discussed-and-debated director among film circles. Man, you want to you talk about an uneven director. And B, he just put out The Martian, which is the best fucking movie I've seen in 2015. So it must be discussed. Stu The Martian, masterpiece, correct? I don't, you know... I I absolutely love The Martian. I and I think it's a great movie. I think it's it's Is it you know, five stars? Is it perfect? It's a five it's a five star okay. movie. I don't, know if, masterpiece, I, don't, I don't know if masterpiece, but if you'll go five I don't know if that cuz right. masterpiece just I don't know that that necessarily right. applies here. I don't know, it's five weird. stars is good. Enough. I started to say what. It's it's a great movie. I mean, this is top 10 of the year material for me. Top 5 probably. Yeah. Uh I mean, it's just it's so wonderful to be reminded that Ridley Scott can make a great not not just make a great movie, 
Uh, but make a great human film like this. Because, you know, I mean, when, when everybody thinks Ridley Scott, they immediately think Blade Runner and Alien, you know. Uh, Which were like his second and third film in a long time ago now. Right. I mean, yeah, th- those were those early, early career stuff. You know, I mean, those sent shockwaves through uh, the film industry. It, but those are so far removed from what this feels like. I mean, this this is this is this is the same Ridley Scott who showed up uh, for Thelma and Louise. Right. And it's and it's weird to kind of reconcile the you know the Ridley Scott who made Blade Runner and the Ridley Scott who made Alien versus Thelma and Louise Ridley Scott and the Martian Ridley Scott because I mean they're the sensibilities of those movies feel so wildly different. It's it's fascinating to me. Uh, you know, but this is, I mean, this is, I, I hate to sound kind of cheesy like this, but I mean, this is, The Martian is a life-affirming movie. I mean, you walk out of this movie just feeling so optimistic about life, about the future, about, you know, what we can accomplish as humans, because, I mean, that's what it's aiming for. It is it is aiming to show that there is no, there are no insurmountable problems. Well, it's very pro-science. You know, there's no villain in the movie. Someone pointed, a friend of mine pointed that out to me on Facebook. There's no villain. Mars right. is the villain. Well, like it's about well, not over, even that. It's, it's like not, Mars, is, Mars isn't, isn't even necessarily right. a villain. It's like, about I mean, overcoming the obstacles set in front of you in right. a rational and creative and thoughtful manner. Like that was one thing that and really it's kind refreshing. Of, one thing that really kind of surprised me was that Jeff Daniels' character wasn't a villain. Like at no point was he, you know, like there there was no bureaucrat. Trying, oh, we don't have the budget for this, or oh, the you know, we we can't, you know, there's no way. I mean, right. there's like, like Jeff Daniels' ev- character and Sean Bean's character get into a little tiff about how they're going about how they're going to go about trying to rescue Matt Damon's astronaut who's stuck on Mars. But even still, it's it's not treated as that antagonistic of a relationship. It's just right. both men are doing what they have to do and clearly respect the other. Everybody is focused on actually solving the problem. Solving the problem. There, yes. There's there's nothing that. You know, no one person is ever standing in that way. And it, from a filmmaking sort of storytelling perspective, there is not an ounce of fat in this movie. It's no, there two, really isn't. It's two and a half hours long and not a minute is wasted. Which, I mean, you could, it, it's so strange because, I mean, this is almost the kind of the, the kind of film that you would almost expect to have that kind of leeway to just kind of, all right, well, let's just, you know, let's just spend time on, on Mars. Let's really dig into, right. you know, in, into, <laughs> into, into Matt Damon's dilemma. Let's really make you feel what's going on because I mean, there's no, there's never really, and and this is really kind of character motivated because his character is like this. It never really lingers on the problems of Mars because right. as, as soon as, you know, as soon as he finds out that he's stranded, he goes into problem solving mode. He is he is as proactive as you can be. And so the film, the film, like the character, never really lingers on the problem. And I think that that's one of the smartest storytelling uh, choices, you know, that Ridley Scott makes throughout this entire thing. And the, the, the cast is wonderful. The supporting characters. One of my favorite things about this movie is how every supporting character is a character. It's like, and I don't know if it's because they cast all these incredible actors and actresses in these parts or because they actually took the time. Like Donald Glover plays like a a techie, an aerospace engineer guy who comes up with a big way to solve the problem they're facing. And he only appears in like three scenes, but he has a very defined and entertaining 
personality. Right. And I feel and, like that goes for almost every character in the film. And it's played by people like Chiwetel Four and Kristen Wiig and Sean Bean and all these wonderful people. Pretty much everyone gets gets at least one great little moment, which is rare for this sort of thing. You know, usually those kind of secondary and even tertiary characters are just kind of put out there and then, you know, forgotten. But, I mean, everybody everybody gets something. I mean, Michael Pena and what a year Michael Pena's had, by Oh, my way. God. Man, put him in everything. Michael Pena is the best. But he basically gets the one scene where he's emailing or messaging Matt Damon once they establish contact. And that's his only real meaty scene in the entire film, and he's fucking great. Right. And it's like, I'm glad this character's in this film, I'm glad Michael Pena's playing this character, and I don't care that he doesn't really factor into the other two hours and 20 minutes. My my favorite, you know, tiny little moment was uh, between Kate Mara and Sebastian, Sebastian Stan. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, when she kisses the visor of his helmet. Yes. And it's like, don't, you know, don't tell anyone. Like, I, I love that. Like, I love that you could kind of tell that they were building up to something like that. Right. Uh, you know, it was, you know, it was understated, but it was still there. Like, And I, I love that that was the payoff for it. I didn't realize that the Winter Soldier was in this film until the end credits, by the way. <laughs> like, I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, I know that guy from somewhere. I right. I know that guy from somewhere. I'm, I'm going to watch the end credits and see if I recognize his name. And when it came up, I'm like, fuck, that's the Winter Soldier. I love Benedict Wong. Yeah, as as Bruce, I mean, he's God, man. I would speaking of somebody that needs to be in more stuff. He's great. I love watching him. It's uh, these these NASA these NASA movies are just great for some reason. Maybe it's just a personal thing, but again, I loved Gravity. I love this movie. I still think Apollo thirteen is probably Ron Howard's best movie. There's just I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I am interested in space travel and I'm very pro science and all that stuff. But uh. Uh, it's just such fertile ground to make these great movies from, I think. Well, and, and it's it's so rare that we get a movie that is this unabashedly optimistic. Yep. You know, that that just feels, um, you know, in, <laughs> in a cinematic climate where we get something like Star Trek Into Darkness, mm-hmm. which is one of the most cynical sci-fi movies that I've seen in maybe ever, you know, made from a franchise that was built on the concept of optimism, mm-hmm. you know, and yet, I mean, and it's just like, not everything has to be dark, not everything has to be brooding, you know, and I, and I love that this isn't, I love that this isn't at, in any way, uh, it's just, it, it's just delightful, warms the heart. Better watch out though when we get to like the Martian Two Mars Strikes Back. <laughs> they, they could turn dark for the middle of Mars trilogy. harder. Mars harder. It, it could turn dark. We don't know, Stu. It's a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so let's talk about Ridley a little bit. And here's what's funny, because we kind of got the idea to do the show, and, and I think I mentioned you online. I'm like, let's just let's just talk about Guillermo del Toro and Ridley Scott. These are both guys we end up talking about online. They have big movies out. Let's talk about that. And then I actually had to go up and load up Ridley Scott on, on IMDb to see w- what movies of his I've seen recently, because I knew there'd been some I'd missed. I knew there'd been a lot I didn't really care about, and Ridley Scott's never really been my favorite guy. Uh, I'm one of those people who likes Aliens better than Alien. You're insane. Even though I really do like Alien. You're insane. I've always preferred Aliens. And 
And although I haven't seen it in a long time, I've always thought Blade Runner was overrated. It was never one of my I, favorites growing that up. I can, that I can kind of agree with you. And with. so I, I've never really been on the Ridley Scott train. So so I so I got online. I'm like, okay, let's see. what what What's the last Ridley Scott movie? And I'm going down, and I'm like, no, nah, I haven't seen that. 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 Stu, the last Ridley Scott film I've seen, not just in a theater, but seen it all, is 2001's Black Hawk Down. Oh, wow. So, honest to God, I'm just going to say it up front, I'm not even really equipped to talk about this man's career. I'm going to let you do it. (laughs) But, listen, here's how it breaks down for me. Again, the two movies that he made his name on have never been giant, impactful movies in my life as a film fan. Um, I do really like Legend a lot. Um, I like Thelma and Louise. I mean, there's some films there I like. I like Gladiator. But then you enter, like, Hannibal. It's a terrible movie based on a terrible book. Um, Black Hawk Down was fine, but I didn't love it. And then you get into a bunch of movies that I either haven't seen, but have been told they're terrible. Uh, like You never you never got around to watching Prometheus? I've never seen it. Everyone says not to watch really? it, so I don't. I have, huh. I have two kids. I'm playing right. video oh, games sure. i'm doing this i'm trying to write <laughs> i don't have time Stu. and P- everyone tells me not to watch prometheus should i watch prometheus no you shouldn't exactly you, you really shouldn't uh the counselor everyone tells me it's terrible oh uh, my god the counselor was so bad robin hood which i have seen a little bit of the one with russell crowe it looks terrible and everyone tells me it's terrible that was also bad there's one where like russell crowe buys a vineyard or something a that looks all these movies are terrible correct Stu? Okay, here's yes, all of those are terrible. Here's what you need to watch. You need to watch American Gangster. Okay, that's uh, with Ameri- Denzel. Is that the one with Denzel? That's with Denzel. Right. Phenomenal cast. Just a just a great movie. I mean that that is a a great gangster picture. I mean it's not. I mean it's not The Godfather, uh, but it's it is just a great. It's a great story, well told. And Denzel okay. is great. Russell Crowe is great. Okay, I'm gonna put American uh, Gangster on my watch list. It, it is absolutely worth worth watching. I rewatched it for the first time, you know, not too long ago. Holds up really well. It, it's just really good stuff. Uh, and then you you need to watch um, you need to watch the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. I've always heard that. It's, it's still it's still not what it could be because Orlando Bloom is still in it. Uh, but it's like the focus is so much l- less on him than the than the theatrical cut. It man, that is that is just the stuff that works in that movie really, really, really works, especially for you know an old classic style epic, massive cast, practically done. Well, Kingdom for- of Heaven came along when like I think I and everyone else were kind of sick of the period epic. I right. mean, Braveheart kind of kicked off a couple years of there being a lot of those, and then Ridley Scott turned in Gladiator, which I didn't enjoy as much as Braveheart, and but and was already Ridley. Scott. I like Gladiator, but uh, it was. Uh, See, I work, think I think Gladiator is a much better film than Braveheart. It it perhaps holds up better, and certainly there are certainly uh, there are some things in Braveheart that are troubling, but. At the, at the very least, we can agree that Braveheart sort of kicked off this trend and came first. And that Scott already kind of had his say on the genre with Gladiator. 
And so by the time King Dahan... Uh, kind of. I don't know. I mean, they're 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 really very different movies. Okay, again, I haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven. I haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven. I can just tell you why I wasn't interested at the time. And right, also, sure. And, and also, it wasn't very well reviewed. And it wasn't until the director's with, with, cut came out that people started saying, reasons. hey... With good reason. The actual cut sucks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Kingdom of Heaven, absolutely worth watching. Uh, the director's cut. Uh, there's, there's so much really good stuff in there. Um, Black Exodus, Hawk Down. God of Kings. No one oh. wants to watch Exodus, Gods and Kings, right? Did well, you especially I didn't, uh, especially not with a whitewashed cast Fucking like that. Whitewashed Christian Bale bullshit. Come on. Uh, yeah, I no, I I had zero zero desire to watch. You are going to talk about Black Hawk Down, which I think is fine, but it never felt the need to revisit. I like it. I, I think it's really good. It's you know, it you kind of go back and you forget how impactful that movie was, just in terms of of you know how it influenced war movies going forward like shaky cam well shaky cam just just a just a general aesthetic mm-hmm. uh you know and style and you know tone the so kind of you putting you right there in the action. yeah just just that really gritty tangible i mean it, it didn't have the same uh you know seismic impact of something like saving private ryan but it kind of came close i mean like you know saving private ryan changed the way that we we were you know, we watched and made war movies, mm-hmm. uh, and this kind of did the same thing. Although, you know, not it wasn't as shocking because, I mean, until Saving Private Ryan, I mean, you know, there was really only kind of one way to make World War II movies, and Saving Private Ryan shattered that. Uh, you know, and this kind of did for modern war uh, what Saving Private Ryan did, kind of in that way, I think. And it's just, you know, I, I think it's good. I, I haven't watched it in a while, uh, but I still think that it's, you know, it, it's a good movie. I, you know, it, it's strange to think that, <laughs> you know, um, oh, it's Josh Hart, Josh Hartnett right. was the only name actor in there at the time. Right. Uh, it's it's like, one of those days to confuse situations where everyone gets famous. Right. Yeah. It's like really, what's Josh Hart and who? He's not doing anything now except Penny Dreadful. But yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's it's you know William Fitchner's in that movie. I don't even remember him being in that movie. He's in every movie though. Thankfully, <laughs> to his to, yeah, right to every movie's credit. Correct. Listen, here's uh, here's my possibly unfair and uneducated impression of Ridley Scott. I I honestly feel like he's kind of a director for hire. He's not, and maybe this is why I veered away from his movies. I like the auteur. I enjoy writers, writer slash directors. I, I, you know, I, I like these guys that, that start their visions on the page and then transfer that over to behind the camera. Whereas Ridley Scott doesn't really write his own material, jumps around from genre to genre, doesn't really seem to have an artist's point of view in any way just kind of is a director for hire just a really really good one sort of a master technician with a really good eye who ends up for whatever reason picking a lot of bad or uninteresting projects i guess i i would kind of disagree with that if only because you know everything almost everything that he's made feels inhabited you know, like he, he has a, I think he does a great job of giving you a defined sense of place and a sense of, a, a sense of time and place. Like, I mean, especially with something like American Gangster, 
you know, I, I love that he just, you know, I love the way that he is able to put you in the middle of something and take you along with it, what it you know, where, whatever it's doing, wherever it's going. Uh, you know, and that's something that even in his bad movies he's able to do. Uh, Russell Crowe's Robin Hood? Yeah, I mean, right. even even in Russell Crowe's Robin Hood, like, I mean, just the, the, the you know, he's he's able to, to just kind of bring out that era. He is, he, you know, he lets you inhabit wherever that is. Even if, you know, I mean, even if it's not very good. Uh, and you the know, 15 it, minutes I saw certainly wasn't. Oscar Isaac, the only thing worth watching in that movie. Everybody forgets that he's in that movie. And he's one of the only good parts. Just chewing up I, scenery is, is Prince John. We need uh, Isaac and Fitchner and some sort of buddy. Just put Oscar Isaac in everything. The man can, like, I want to see, see him in a comedy. I think My, he would kill it as a, in a comedy. The, uh, the thing is, is, I've seen Oscar Isaac in very little. And so has everyone, because he hasn't been in that much stuff. But he is so good in Inside Lewin Davis that it's like it, it only took one movie for me to get on the Oscar Isaac train. And I think that's pretty much how the world at large went. He's an absolute and, chameleon. It's 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 so impressive because like you'll forget that he's in some stuff. That's how good he is. Yeah, I, I, I I'm if you create the let's put Oscar Isaac in everything petition, I'm on board. Absolutely needs to happen. But uh. Yeah, Ridley Scott, I mean, he's getting up there in years. How old is the man now? Uh, he's got to be, like, in his 70s, I think, at so least. it's... Uh, I mean, we kind of talked a little about Guillermo del Toro's future. I, I don't know how you do with Ridley Scott. He's 70. I'm assuming, especially after The Martian, he's still going to have his pick of scripts. He's going to pick the ones he wants to do, and he's going to keep doing that until he drops dead, I guess. Right? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Which is fine. That's I mean, you know, it's, I mean, you can still make great stuff at that age. Obviously, as he's shown, as like Scorsese has shown, you know, I mean, you can you can still do that. Of course, Scott's working on a Prometheus sequel now, so, which way to ruin all of that goodwill. <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, is the Martian? I mean, should I go back and examine all these movies I've skipped out on? You're, you're I, giving you're giving me a couple, but it's not a majority by any stretch. Was the Martian just kind of a fluke and a perfect marriage of director with material? And, I think it's I think it's definitely the. I mean, it is by far the best movie that he's made since American Gangster. But I mean, that's not hard when you're. Output is Robin Hood, Prometheus, The Counselor, and Exodus, God, and Kings. Yeah. Um, you know, but I and and it it just goes back to prove that he is he is as good as the material that he chooses or is given. I kind of like The Martian's a very nuts and bolts movie. It doesn't play on your emotion as much as something like Gravity does, and I just think that style of script was sort of perfectly suited to Scott's nuts and bolts sensibilities. I think that's yeah, the impression no, I got from it. No, I, it I, just, I agree. And but man, everybody should see this movie because it is so good. It really, really is. And Matt Damon's really great in it. This is as good as Matt Damon has been in a long time, and I, I don't, I don't know that he's ever given a bad performance he's just really really good in this yeah i'm very pro matt damon i think he's good most of the time but he is excellent here and by the way trivia jessica chastain in both of the films we've talked about tonight right she's had an interesting month ranging from highs to lows 
I guess she doesn't have to worry as much about Crimson Peak's box office since she was also in The Martian, which is a great success. Yeah, I think pretty much everyone involved acting-wise in that is, you know, will be fine. So, go see The Martian. Go go see Crimson Peak only if you're aware that it's not much of a horror film. It's more of a gothic romance and you're into that kind of thing. Although I think you could skip it anyway even if you're into that, but... You think there might be some value there? Yeah, I, I think that there's. I mean, there's definitely enough good stuff there. You know, go see it at a matinee. Sounds good. So I think that's it for the episode, Stu. Thanks much for joining me tonight. Oh, my pleasure as always. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Robert B Taylor. You can follow Stu at Stuby Doo. Please follow the site at Cult Spark. We're also on Facebook. Uh, throw us a nice review at iTunes. We really like when that happens. And we'll catch you next episode. Thanks for listening.